Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, and welcome, everybody. I am so excited for today's episode. Our guest is Patrick McLean. He's a seasoned marketing and digital executive, and he's led really transformational results at some of the largest, some of the most successful brands in the world. His 25 years of experience include tenure as the CMO of companies like TD Bank, Walgreens, as well as most recently, EcoATM Gazelle, which is a private equity-backed mobile device reseller. He's also spent past stints as well at companies like Capital One Financial, Verizon Communications, as well as Bell Canada, recently named to Business Insider's list of the 27 most innovative CMOs in the world. Patrick, it's fantastic to have you on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Vincent. So one of the interesting things when you take a look at the span of the industries and kind of roles that you've had across your careers is you've jumped around a bit. You've gone for everything from financial sector to Walgreens, which is really retail and health focused company and even traditional telecom. What has been your calculus or how has your career led you to the path or the journey that you were on? Yeah, it's been a great ride. I've been in some very interesting industries at very interesting times. And I think that's probably the common thread in my career is when I was in telecom, it was the old phone company trying to become a broadband wireless company, a big change happening, big transformation happening in the industry. And those companies needed to change dramatically. Then it was financial services right after the financial crisis, yep. uh, right at the early stage of fintech and online banking, digital banking. So it was the old traditional retail bank model, trying to become more omni-channel financial service, like the relationship you would have with your bank today. And then Walgreens was a legacy retailer, legacy pharmacy business, trying to modernize, become more relevant to the modern consumer, and then trying to elevate the brand to a more broad wellness and health offering. So all big meaty challenges and just being part of those exercises has been just a great learning experience for me and a great experience overall. As you describe kind of like the journey through and with those companies, it seems like a lot of the work that you've done is not necessarily a rebranding of the company, but definitely shifting the perception of how consumers or clients perceive what that company does. That's it. And I love that challenge. Just for me, the The marketing strategy components of what I've done in my career is just, it's been a joy to be a part of, because as you mentioned, it's not necessarily a complete rebrand or change everything. It's just changing the way people think of the brand or think of the company. And that works its way back into every fabric of those companies. When you think about it, like they got to change culturally, they got to change their product lineup, they've got to change the way they interact with customers, make technology investments. And in my role as a marketing leader in those companies, in a lot of ways, I've had the pleasure of being a catalyst and an evangelist for those change, mm-hmm. for those changes on behalf of the customer, which I think as a marketer is just one of the most exciting places to be. Tactically, what does that playbook look like for you? When you take a look at 
companies, quite frankly, the list of companies that the FCC this year or FTC this year is going after. You have companies like Amazon, where they're as broad as everything from grocery stores to now even pharmacy, mail order pharmacy, primary care, urgent care to the bookseller that they started out being. Amazon could announce tomorrow a completely new product line that they're not in. And it wouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. But when you have somebody like a Verizon, for instance, where their bread and butter, the overwhelming majority of the revenue comes from a single type of service. It's a big shift when somebody like a Verizon wants to become a media company and wants to become an ad revenue driven company. Yeah, and those are great examples. I think that from the in the consumer's mind, companies like a Verizon, for example, or like a Walgreens, they've got a very specific notion of what that company is. However, that being said, there's also some great things that come along with that because these are very famous brands. They're very well known. You don't have an awareness problem in any way, shape, or form. So it really becomes an exercise in getting really tight on what's the story that you want to tell about the way you want people to think of the new Verizon or the new Walgreens or the new TD Bank. You got to get really crisp and really creative about it. And you really have to hit it hard because to change somebody's mind about a brand is is a significant effort, right? Because Mm -hmm. you got to hit people over and over. You got to give them lots of reasons to believe so that over time, you're starting to shift that perception and people maybe don't completely leave behind the old perception, but they respect what the company has done historically, but now they're thinking about the company in a different way, more in line with maybe what their expect their new expectations are, their new needs are ideally. And then that's a recipe for success and for growth and for sustaining the brand. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And then you have other companies like Facebook where they completely change their name to Meta and go all in on the metaverse before the product is there. (laughs) Yeah, fascinating stuff. But then you look at what they're doing with threads now Mm -hmm. and the early indications are that that's just an incredible success. And it's building on success of some of the other brands that they've had, but they're leveraging the fact that they have this massive user base and they've got technology that can easily adapt into what is essentially a completely new offering for them. So it's a great example. And now the perception of Meta as a company, I think overnight has kind of changed. And I think they've done it through product innovation and obviously capturing a competitive moment where there's a big historically successful competitor that is kind of on the ropes. And I think they're doing an excellent job of taking advantage of the market conditions and the situation in that regard. I couldn't agree more there. I think the other thing that's really impressive about what Meta has done with Threads launching it on the backs of Instagram is the product, the operations teams, the development teams for Instagram, I'm sure are massive teams. They're large team sizes today. And they went back to their roots of being small and scrappy in building Threads where the small team of Threads product managers, designers, and engineers are literally on Threads. And you can send them messages, you can see the updates that they're sharing, but they didn't put a thousand people behind it. They really put a small, nimble team and built out not completely different experience, but really what is a similar experience with a few key differences that really made the difference in the adoption. 
I agree. And just imagine what's going on inside of Meta right now. It's just probably rejuvenated the company. And I'm sure they couldn't be more excited about what they're seeing. And this is a company that's, I wouldn't call them hardships, but they've certainly taken some hits over the past few years, even just from the regulatory environment and public perception of their company. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure internally now, this is just a moment of inflection and culturally and just the public perception of the company, I think has changed dramatically in a very, very short period of time. Could not agree more. I was trying to share my screen of a thread that I posted, but there's no desktop version of threads, which yes. kind of goes, <laughs> goes to exactly point yeah. to what exactly is actually necessary to be able to get adoption. It's not always going off and spending three years building. Yep. But I posted something in the early days of threads, time to reach 100 million users. The telephone took 75 years to reach 100 million users, which is baffling to think about something that's just so omnipresent today. The internet took seven years to reach 100 million users. Twitter, when they launched, took five years. TikTok took nine months to hit 100 million users. ChatGPT took two months to hit 100 million users. And Threads did it in five days. Some could argue that Threads was able to do that because of leveraging Instagram. But really, their launch plan was for the most part organic. You know, yeah. it was almost as if you were just leveraging a single sign-on via Instagram. But anybody today could build something with single sign-on to an Apple account, single sign-on to a Google account, single sign-on from a LinkedIn account. So I'm not sure how much that actually made a difference because in the Instagram app itself, Zuck posted, I think the first weekend the threads had launched, that they haven't even turned on their promotion, their marketing plan to actually yeah. promote threads yet. It's amazing when you've got such a large, it's sort of these examples of some of the big brands that I've worked for as well, is you have this massive embedded customer base and everybody Mm -hmm. knows who you are. And if you can get it right and improve and have a really good value proposition for somebody and do a really good job marketing it, it can happen pretty quickly. So my example of that would be when I was at Walgreens, we reinvented the My Walgreens loyalty program, which used to be called Balanced Rewards. There's 100 million people in that loyalty program and re-authenticated and moved people from the Balanced Rewards program into My Walgreens. Yep. We got the vast majority of that 100 million in the first six months. And it was because we had so many customer touch points, we had a good offering, and we made it really super easy for people to convert. And mm-hmm. that's a legacy company being able to do maybe not quite as fast as Meta, but still in yep. a pretty, pretty quick timeline, a similar kind of exercise to just reposition what's a pretty major offering for the company. Yeah, and I think something Walgreens has done a good job with is also being tech forward and tech enabled. The My Walgreens, my point that I converted over to it and really started leveraging it was when it joined yep. my Apple wallet. I just don't like typing my phone number at POS station. It's just it's too many steps. For sure. Well, that was part of it, right? It's, it was built on just a really kind of old mentality around it's your phone number that matters. And Mm -hmm. these days, I mean, obviously the mobile number is still key, but it should be just super seamless for you. And now it is. And there's still people who do it the kind of the old way, but obviously that was part of the point. Yeah, absolutely. When you've worked at some of these larger brands, I hear CMOs oftentimes describing it as you're steering a really big ship that has a lot of momentum 
hard to pivot quickly, but strategy of shifts are a lot of the times, a lot of these like small changes that add up to something bigger. What were some of the lessons that you've learned working with some of these brands? I think that's right on trying to change culture and trying to change the direction of companies on on that kind of scale is a massive challenge. For me, some of the moments along the way were just understanding that as a CMO, a lot of times you wind up being one of the evangelists for change. And when you realize that is part of the, it awakens your mind to a whole other set of tasks and responsibilities that you have to bring people along for the ride. And in many cases, you've got peers, you've got other leaders throughout the organization that have been with the company for a long time and have been very successful. And so when you're trying to move away from something that maybe has been successful in the past, but isn't necessarily going to be successful in the future, there's a lot of education that needs to go into that. It just doesn't happen. You need to bring people along for the ride. And then the other part of that is, I'd say two other things. One is to always have the voice of the customer, because no matter what field you're in or what type of executive in, whether you're an operator, whether you're a chief financial officer, whatever you are, you can always relate to the customer on some level. And so that's one of the big roles of the CMO is to be that voice of the customer. And so just keep to that part of the mandate. And then finally, always be fact-based always be data-led because if it starts to become a subjective discussion, it's highly unlikely you're going to move somebody off of their subjective opinion by making other subjective arguments. So those are some things I learned along the way. And in a lot of ways, the more senior you get, the less actual marketing you do, and you wind up doing a lot more evangelizing, educating, and being that voice of the customer internally and helping to move the company forward and grow. I couldn't agree more with you there. A lot of the times, and that's a big shift for marketers throughout their career. When you take a look at early stage marketers, somebody will could start in corporate communications or they could start in PR or they could start in social media or they can start in kind of one of these marketing niches. And success at that phase of a career is being a subject matter expert is being really technical and deep in the tools and in the data and being the best at doing that job. And there's an inherent change over the course of growing through roles where so much more of it ends up becoming building alignment, aligning around a vision, aligning around strategy, and really like resourcing in the right places and placing the right bets on those resources. And that's a completely different job than the copyright. That's it. And it's important to learn the craft, clearly. If you want to be a marketing leader, then you need to know how to do marketing. And more and more, you need to create a strategic framework, a vision, a mission for the team, all those things that you describe. But it becomes more about leadership over time, your ability to motivate people, your ability to lead people, your ability to influence throughout the organization, And you do less and less marketing over time. And it's kind of a shame because we're in marketing because we love marketing. (laughs) And sometimes the other stuff isn't as fun, but it's an important aspect of the job. And if you want the CMO seat, you have to learn over time that those that's at least 60% of the job. And then, of course, there are moments when you're right in the middle of the work and you get to use all of the skills that you developed over the course of your career but it's those other skills and those other leadership attributes that are going to take you to the next level and make you successful when you finally get to that C-suite 
Yeah, and I think that actually is like one of the pieces about marketing that in software engineering, it's actually pretty similar, right? You have some software engineers and you can make a really great living being a developer or a data scientist. If that's your craft and that's what you're passionate about doing, the switch over to be an engineering manager might actually be the worst job in the world and the job that you actually want the least. I think that's right. I mean, there's lots of examples of that. Even like think about people in sales, right? People would say, well, I was making more money when I was doing sales and before I became a sales manager. And being a sales manager isn't nearly as much fun as actually selling. So I think it's, <laughs> it's similar. And I love the work. Of course, we all love the creative process. And I love the data and analytics and customer insight part of it. And just connecting marketing to the success of the business is just something that I've loved over the course of my career so far. But at the same time, I've also learned to love, I would say, the other aspects of things that matter. I love leading people. I love the talent part of the job. And I love influencing across the organization. It's just, it's fun. And it's so rewarding when you see organizations move on behalf of the customer. And when you feel like you've had a significant role in moving the company forward, it's just, it's very gratifying. hundred percent. I just shared for anybody who's listening to the audio version of this podcast, I shared on the screen. If you check out the video version on YouTube or in the show notes, we can put a link to this, the marketing career framework. This is for destination CMO. It's a podcast. I'm working on a book about marketing careers and this pyramid is going to be in the book in terms of just like the areas of growth for marketing, where on the bottom of the pyramid, you have things like customer insight, creative development, marketing channels, marketing technology, metrics and analytics. At the top of the pyramid are really like you work your way up throughout your career. But Patrick, like to your point, at the top of the pyramid, you can see on here is people, organization, business strategy, and financial acumen, which is completely different than, than marketing channels. But what are the areas on here that you've seen marketers stumble on as they grow in their career? And like, what can somebody do to be able to improve or get stronger there? Well, first of all, I think this is right on. I'm going to borrow this when you publish your book. So thank you for that <laughs> in advance. This is great. For me, where people tend to get lost on the way up the pyramid is when they get to this business strategy, financial acumen level. I've always found that good marketing strategy follows good business strategy. And if your business strategy isn't where it needs to be, it's very hard for the marketer to do their job because you're not crisp and you're not clean on what you stand for and where you're going and what you're trying to accomplish. And so understanding business strategy and influencing business strategy from the perspective of the customer, from the perspective of the marketer is a key transition for people, right? It's not just marketing, it's how does marketing intersect with business strategy? So I think that's a really key point. The other piece for me is the financial piece. So when you can get to your CFO, a lot of People will talk about the relationship between the CMO and the chief information officer, chief technology officer or whatever. That's obviously critical and become increasingly critical. But for me, there's a third one there, which is the CFO. Because if you can convince the CFO that dollar for dollar marketing investment is as sound, if not more sound than other investment opportunities across the board, that's going to help everybody because you're going to be investing not only in the brand, but you're going to be investing in top line revenue growth, more customers, et cetera. So tying the measurement piece of marketing back to how much revenue is it driving, how many more customers are we getting? That's another transition 
that marketers need to make over the course of their career to understand you're not just doing marketing for marketing's sake and you're not just doing marketing for what has historically been thought of as brand building. The point of marketing is to drive revenue and get more customers and keep the customers that you have. And so the more you can demonstrate that and everything you do, the more you're going to work yourself up this chain, both from a career perspective and also just from a impact perspective of the work that you're doing. I couldn't agree more with that. And when I hear you talk about the financial acumen, the word that you used a few times is investments. And I think one of the most dangerous areas for marketing leaders to be in is if they sound like they're running a cost center and in the way that they describe marketing, they're talking about budgets from merely a cost center perspective as opposed to a return on investment perspective. And so one of those big like aha moments for marketers throughout their career is when they get proficient at understanding CAC or customer acquisition costs and how that pertains or how that has an impact on lifetime value and how much essentially margin and EBITDA is coming from customers based on that CAC. Because as soon as you can get really crisp on that, and as soon as you can realign your KPIs and scorecards around that, it becomes a lot easier to be able to take those finance partners as partners and to be able to describe investment with a high probability of being able to hit that return. I think the other bucket too is like being able to explain to those finance teams, what's an experiment, what's a bet that we're making that we don't know how it'll pay off versus what is a proven funnel and a proven campaign. That's it. The measurement and you've got experimentation right below that business strategy and financial acumen. And that's a big part of it. You got to be able to create First of all, a culture of experimentation within the marketing organization to know that at any given time you should have, I don't know, 10 to 15 different experiments going on. You need to be able to design those experiments properly so that you can prove with a high degree of probability that further investment in whatever that experiment is trying to prove is going to pay back in a meaningful way. So that's absolutely key. I think of marketing as fuel for the organization. And I think if you can get that mentality into your team, and if you can portray that when you're speaking to other executives across the business is that give us more fuel and we can go faster or give us more fuel and we can grow more, give us more fuel and we can go to a a different place than we are today. That mentality is going to serve you very, very well. Because as you said, if you wind up as another line to cut, when things start to slow or if they're looking for ways to cut expenses, let's be realistic. It's always going to be a little bit like that, but you want to counterbalance that with the mentality of you're taking fuel away. And when you take the fuel away, sure, maybe things are slowing down a little bit, but if you're not feeding with fuel, it's going to slow even more. And you can wind up in a situation where, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy if you start slashing marketing budgets. 100%. And inevitably, there will always be times where, whether it's broader industry trends or whether it's just economic trends at a macro level that are impacting all companies, there's going to be a time where finance teams are going to say, we're taking a haircut across mm-hmm. every team, right? Every team's got to chip in. And I think one of the mistakes that I've made early in my career is I treat that haircut as a haircut across the board, as opposed to 
coming with a more thoughtful plan that might include deep cuts in one area while making investments and actually increasing budgets in another area. That's really smart. And the way I've always thought about it is, of course, ROI is an aspect of it. But to your point, if you sort of do the haircut across the board, maybe everything suffers as opposed to actually making hard choices where you would actually stop something entirely so that you're not making everything across the board suffer because that might actually be a worse choice. Right. In the middle of the pyramid customer experience, you talked about the marketing leader being almost like the evangelist internally for being like the voice of the customer, which has quite frankly turned into too much of a catchphrase. So I probably shouldn't even describe it, describe it like that. But I think one interesting place for you in your career was you joined Walgreens November of 2019, but you went through the first three months of company orientation, and then you get your first big test, which is this coronavirus pandemic. Looking back at those times, you have a company with a lot of physical retail locations. You have a lot of employees that are working in those retail locations. You're fundamentally part of the healthcare system with the pharmacy and everything that you can buy. And even, I mean, on the PPE side, right, with being able to pick up masks, Walgreens was one of the first locations that I went to. What were the things that you were seeing there and how did that impact your guidance to your team? Wow, that could be a whole other podcast. I mean, reflecting back on it, first of all, I was incredibly impressed with the whole operational element of it, just trying to keep everybody safe, staying open, the logistics around, I mean, we ran out of a lot of stuff and just the supply chain issues, all of that. So I gained just an incredible, I mean, I obviously I had a lot of respect for it to begin with, but the way that the company responded to just sustain itself was just remarkable. Then it became in a, just an incredible experience in cutting through the crap and all the bureaucracy and all of the difficulty making decisions that come Mm -hmm. along with a big company like that. And it was just, maybe this is the wrong analogy, but it was wartime. So we rolled up our sleeves. We cut through all of the red tape and the usual stuff. We prioritized really, really well. And we got stuff done on behalf of our customers, our patients, the country, whatever you want to call it. It was just, it was an incredible example of leaders coming together with almost a single-minded purpose. And if I look at sometimes in these large companies, not to pick on Walgreens, because I think it's it would be common in a lot of large organizations, is it's difficult to prioritize because there's a gazillion things going on and you wind mm-hmm. up almost with a peanut butter approach, trying to do everything and you don't pick and you're not very specific about your purpose and where you're heading. And then secondarily, you you move slow because everybody's got an opinion and you want everybody to feel like they're part of it, et cetera. And this was just the opposite of that. And then it became just a huge opportunity for the brand. You talk about change. The perception of the time of Walgreens was pretty old, pretty physical, And we had just this enormous opportunity to change that. And in a lot of ways, the pandemic was a catalyst for changing the way people thought of Walgreens. We launched new products, you know, order online, pick up 
in store or delivery options that we didn't have before. A lot of enhancements to the digital properties in a pretty quick time frame, just because that's where people were expecting to meet us. We created a lot of content because people were looking to us mm-hmm. as one of the sources of good information, all of that. So it was just an incredible mobilization, I guess, of all the resources of the company. And my learning from that was, man, it becomes so powerful when you're crisp on strategy, you're crisp on purpose, and you know where you're going and you're prioritizing as a team. And then everybody works toward the same prioritized items. And I think, unfortunately, after the pandemic, I think a lot of companies who had to do that got back into some of their bad habits. And that's a real shame. Yeah. I mean, when I take a look at the innovation that occurred just in retail in general during the pandemic, there are not many good things happening during the pandemic, but the gift to marketers for sure was the QR code. Yeah. And the gift to consumers for sure was curbside pickup. Yeah, for sure. Well, Um, remember, I mean, uh, it's so funny you say that because, I mean, the QR code was effectively dead with the exception of maybe airlines and mobile boarding passes and stuff like that. But aside from that, it's just not even a QR code, which is not even really a QR code. Exactly. (laughs) So it's like, aside from that, the use was pretty, pretty minimal. And and you're right. It it sort of had a renaissance. So it's interesting. Yeah. I don't think it's a far off stretch to say it's a wartime because the Defense Production Act was literally used to produce medical supplies during that time. Let's talk a little bit about shifting industries. You know, one of the decisions that everybody has to make in their career, whether you're a marketer or whether you work in a different function is, do you stay within an industry or do you jump across industries? What do you see as the pros and cons of making those two decisions? And if you do make the jump, what are the tactical moves to be able to prepare for it and successfully transition roles? Yeah, it's a great question. I've loved it, first of all, because it's added so much variety to my career and my life. And it's been fascinating to learn and be a part of the various industries I've been a part of. I think the challenges are just how quickly can you learn the business? Because obviously, if you're coming from one place and it's a completely different business, then you got to understand back to our strategy and financial discussion. If you're a leader at that company, you got to quickly get up to speed. And that's just trying to get yourself up the learning curve as quickly as possible. I think that for me, the industries are common enough because the moves are similar, right? They're service industries. There's a component of acquisition. There's a component of loyalty and CRM. Mm -hmm. They're repeat businesses. There's a regulatory aspect to all of them. So in a lot of ways, there have been some common elements to each of them. But I would say be really a sponge if and when you have the opportunity to shift into a new industry, because the faster you can become competent and obviously speak intelligently with the business leaders, it's going to help you a lot. The other side is back to the data and the customer, right? Understand the customer dynamics. And again, I think in those industries, there's enough commonality that I was able to adapt pretty quickly. But I think if you were to go from a CPG company to a direct-to-consumer company, that comes with a whole other host of challenges. And I think in my case, I've been fortunate that there was more common than not. Yeah. Yeah. I've made similar jumps across financial services, retail, spent 10 years at Best Buy. And this year has been my first jump into a healthcare focused company, which brings a level of regulation that I've never seen in my entire life. But I think to your point on being the sponge, we're living in a day and age where 
the six degrees of separation doesn't exist anymore with platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter. You're not six degrees away from anybody anymore. And that's how you and I connected for this podcast on LinkedIn. But there's also so many resources online to be able to absorb information. And that isn't like the pre-pandemic world where you'd have to buy a two or $3,000 ticket to go to some industry conference to listen to speakers on stage with the type of just resources that are available online now. That's right. I believe that's why you're seeing more CMOs being able to change industries pretty seamlessly. And it's more now important to look at, if you're going to make a career move, look at the marketing problem that you're going to be tackling rather than the industry itself. Because that's what matters, in my opinion, is that you're going in to tackle a marketing challenge or an opportunity that you're excited about. Of course, it's great if you also happen to have a passion for, in your case, like electronics, if you were working at Best Buy or whatever it may be, that obviously helps, but I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the passion always helps. And what ends up being interesting is in some instances where you have companies that are trying to disrupt something or build something innovative, your experience from an outside industry might actually be a a plus and that somebody coming in from the same industry, and this has happened to me too, like if I spend too much time in one place, you miss the new perspective, but you also might miss that the entire industry is doing the exact same thing and applying a best practice from outside of that industry could actually be the thing that's a competitive differentiation. That's absolutely correct. There's no question. Think about the people that you surround yourself in your organization. I look at it as the more diverse, the better. And mm-hmm. I mean that in the full sense of the word, right? Like if people are from different walks of life, if people are from different industries, you're only going to get more perspective at the table. And so I couldn't agree with more with what you said. Yeah. So what about like later career for marketers? When you take a look at other C-suite roles, like the seat of the CFO, for instance, there's a pretty clear career path from the chief financial officer to the chief executive officer. For CMOs, I would say that you don't meet as many CMOs who want to be in that CEO role as the lead operator. You see a lot of CMOs going into advisory roles, into board roles, whether they're nonprofit or for-profit or roles as an independent board seat. And you see some people who they'll continue to add value just in different organizations or by switching industries. What are the paths that you've seen and how do you think about that as a more experienced marketer? I've seen a little bit of the CMO to CEO thing happen, which I think is good. I think it depends on the company. I think there's circumstances where having a marketer in the CEO seat is actually a really positive thing. In other cases, it might be more challenging. I think that's part of it. I also think the step before becoming a CEO is getting some sort of general manager or PL experience, right? And, yep. and some marketing roles are configured where you have a little bit more PL accountability, and some are very distant from that. Mm-hmm. And I think if you have ambition beyond the CMO level, you've got to have that, in my opinion. And so I've seen a lot of, of leaders wind up, like in retail, you might start as the CMO and then you might become the chief merchant, 
where you might right. take on a big category or whatever it is, and then eventually yep. work your way up. You know, that's one path. I think it's rare to see CMOs completely sort of rotate into a CFO or a operations role or things like that. I just yep. think the skill sets are pretty different. So those are the kind of things I've seen. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. One last question for you. For the past few years have fundamentally changed work-life balance and like how we perceive the future of work. The entire world got a taste of what full remote work looks like, at least for some white collar roles. We're living in a world of kind of hybrid work now. Some companies have taken different definitions of that. Others have gone so far as to say the definition at our company is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office required 100% employees. You have to live within certain miles of a company. Where do you think the future of that is going? And how is the balance between work and home life kind of changed forever? It's hard to see us going all the way back to in the office five days a week, in my mm -hmm. opinion. In some cases, you're going to see companies try to swing all the way back. I think you're going to find that there's a certain pool of talent that you're going to miss if you try to do that because of the people's expectations have changed for good. My view of it is that we're going to wind up in a hybrid world where I think the Tuesday to Thursday example is a really good one where you've got opportunity for people to have some flexibility a couple of days a week. It's good for people to have time to think, honestly, because I do think that there's historically been not enough time to think and you're just constantly going from meeting to meeting. So I think that's good. And, but I do think there's no question that people getting together in person, even the social aspect of that is good culturally. And it's good for just sort of kind of inter-office thinking. You run into people in the hallway. The whole thing is, I think you miss that if you're fully remote. And my view is that we'll get back to more in office even than we have today. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, there's so much, especially when you talk about growing throughout your career, many times the business strategy, the financial acumen, some of it is like the hallway conversation that you catch glimpses of, but you wouldn't have been on that meeting or you might not have been on that distribution list, but it kind of gives you the broader perspective and especially the relationships in the network. Yep. And when I say network here, I'm really talking like internally within the organization still. And so I think that's a really good point. You know, for me personally, my productivity has changed. I didn't used to purposefully block out large blocks of time, but when you switch and if you work in that hybrid world, whether your organization is Tuesday, Thursday or Tuesday through Thursday or whatnot, it's a lot better to do those meetings in person. It's a lot more yeah. fun to do those meetings in person than on a Zoom, which actually gives you these other days to be able to block out large chunks of productive heads down time that I didn't necessarily use to protect like I do now. Yeah, I'm the same way. And organizations have to recognize that even if you're not physically in the office or even if you're not actually in a meeting or whatever, it doesn't mean you're not working. I mean, you're always working on some level because you know your brain is still active in terms of what's going on at the office. So I think for the most part, there's a new and a better appreciation for that than there was prior to the pandemic. Yeah, completely agree. The other thing element that I love now is before the pandemic, the reaction of the kids jumping on the Zoom in the background compared to how it is now where you have to introduce yourself and say hi to everybody is a welcome change as a parent. Patrick, it's such a pleasure to be able to chat with you today. If somebody wants to learn more about you, stay in touch with you, where's the best place to connect? 
Yeah, LinkedIn is the primary way. I try to be responsive and I just appreciate the time to chat through all these great topics you introduced. So thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, please make sure to like and subscribe. Follow Patrick on his LinkedIn account and we'll see you next time. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.